0: I believe the last time the old preacher filled in for the young preacher that the song leader led ancient words. (laughs) But we are looking at some ancient words today, Uh, ancient words from the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. We're looking at the story of Elijah today. And if you go to Israel and go to the top of Mount Carmel, which is in the story, you'll see this statue. Uh, built to remember Elijah. Pictures the old prophet with a bloody knife raised over the uh, scene with his foot on the neck of a prophet of Baal. Quite a statue, quite a prophet. First Kings seventeen one introduces us to Elijah, and it simply says, Elijah the Tishbite said to uh, We don't know anything else about Elijah. No more background, nothing about his family uh, we don't even know where Tishbe was. Uh, we know where Gilead was, but we don't know his town. So uh, that's how it begins. How many of you know the story of Elijah in in general? Not every detail, but pretty much. How many of you read it this week? I put the scriptures in the bulletin so you could prepare for this. All right, that's not 100%, so I've got to tell the story. Uh, Let me tell you briefly about Elijah, and there's a lot of parts to his story, but we'll do it very, very quickly to see if we can get the basics of it. It begins with him confronting the Ahab. That's when we are introduced to him. Ahab was a king of the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom. He was the eighth king, uh, reigned for 22 years, and the Bible says of him, he did more evil than all before him. He was a bad king. He was a wicked king. On top of that, the Bible says he added to the misery by marrying Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel was from Sidon, a very idolatrous country. Her daddy was Ethbaal, the king of Sidon. Ethbaal means Baal lives. And so Eli- uh, Ahab married Jezebel. Uh, you don't know anybody named Jezebel these days because she was so wicked. I'm pretty sure Ethbaal was the last daddy to name a daughter Jezebel. Uh, That's how bad she was. Uh, She made Ahab worse. As bad as he was, once he married her, he began to worship her gods. He built a temple for Baal. He erected Asherah poles to the fertility goddess that uh, Jezebel was familiar with. And the Bible says after that, he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord than all before him. And to this king, Elijah appears, like I said, from nowhere. He just walks into the palace one day, evidently. And I'm sure that Ahab questioned him, who are you? What are you here for? And Elijah, I'm sure, answered, my name is Elijah. And that meant something. El, God, E, or the middle pronoun there, about possession, my, and Yah, Jehovah. His name was, My God is Jehovah. So he told Ahab who he was, and then, for 17, 1 says, Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That seems like an amazing pronouncement, but all Elijah was doing was delivering the sentence. He was giving the news to Ahab that, all right, God's patience is worn out. He's going to keep his promise. He promised a long time ago this would happen. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16 says, God said, if you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. They depended on rain for their economy, for agriculture, and all that. And God said, you turn aside to other gods, and this will happen. Elijah was just delivering that message that the time had come. After he made his announcement, it tells us nothing about what Ahab said. I'm sure he didn't believe him. But then it says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and told him to leave. You leave here, you go to Cherith. A little town, and you go outside that, and there's a brook there where you can find water, and I'll have the ravens bring you food. The Bible says, So he went to Cherith. Once in Cherith, he found the brook. He found that the ravens did bring him food, and he lived alone for we don't know how many months until the brook dried up. That happens in a drought when it stops raining completely. The brook dried up and then the word of the Lord came to Elijah and he said, go to Zarephath. So I've got a widow there who will take care of you. And the Bible says, so he went to Zarephath. When he got to Zarephath, he found the widow and he was hungry from his journey. And he told her, he said, bring me some bread. And she basically said, you got to be kidding. She said, I'm out here getting some firewood. Uh, I've got a little bit of flour, and I've got a little bit of oil, just enough to make a loaf of bread for me and my boy, and we're going to eat that, and then we're going to die. We have nothing. And Elijah, I'm sure, told her, it'll be okay. Uh, My God is Jehovah. So she went in, did what she was told. The oil and the flour never ran out. There was always more after every time she cooked. During that stay, the son died, and Elijah raised him from the dead. He asked God if he had raised the son, and he did. Uh, up to that point, as far as we know, no one had ever been raised from the dead. Elijah had no precedent for this. Uh, but he asked God to do it, and God did. Uh, stayed there uh, past three years for total time from the time he had spoken to Ahab. And after three and a half years or so, the word of the Lord finally came to Elijah again and said, now go see Ahab. So Elijah went. When Ahab saw Elijah coming near him, he said, is that you? You troubler of Israel? And Elijah said, I haven't caused trouble for Israel. You've caused the trouble for Israel. And then Elijah commanded Ahab. And you may wonder, why would a king obey commands? Well, the last time he talked to this guy, he shut the rain off for three years. He was probably paying attention. And Elijah said, I want you to get all the people of Israel, tell them to go to the top of Mount Carmel, be sure to bring the 450 prophets of Baal that work for your wife, and bring the 400 prophets of Asherah that work for your wife, and bring them all to the top of Mount Carmel. They appeared on the top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah first went to the people of Israel. And he said to them, how long will you waver between two opinions? You see, the people still kind of remembered Jehovah, as wicked as all the kings had been. And all the different gods they were told to worship, they remembered Jehovah. But they tried to juggle that with what the society was telling them. The culture said, Baal is God, Asherah is the goddess. And the people tried to keep all of that going at once. And Elijah said, how long can you waver between these two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. It's fairly simple. And then he told them, he said, I'm the only one left. I'm outnumbered 850 to 1. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a contest, and we're going to both build altars, and we're both going to get a bull, and we're going to sacrifice the bull, but we're not going to light the fire. We're going to ask our gods to. So you guys go first, prophets of Baal. You ask your God to light the fire, and I'll ask Jehovah to light the fire. And then he said, the God who answers by fire, he is God. People Followed his plan. The prophets of Baal built their altar. They slaughtered their bull. They cried from morning till noon for their God to light the fire, and nothing happened. About noon, Elijah got up from his place under the shade tree, probably, and began to taunt them. He said, Maybe you need to yell a little louder. Uh, Well, he's a God. I guess he ought to be able to hear. But maybe he's sleeping. Well, maybe he's on traveling. Well, maybe he's meditating. Maybe, King James says, maybe he's gone aside, which most scholars believe means maybe he's in the bathroom. And that fired up the prophets of Baal a lot more. They started cutting themselves, so they show Baal some blood. They get his attention, show him how serious they were about this, and they cried from noon until the evening sacrifice, and nothing happened. Elijah said, "It's my turn. He went over to the altar of God that had been torn down, took 12 stones from it, built a new altar, cut up his bull, got the firewood, put it all on there and said, now dig me a trench around that. Now go get some water and pour all over the wood. Go get some more water, do it again. Go get more water, do it again until the trench is full. Then chapter 18, verse 36, says this. At the time of the offering, Elijah the prophet stepped forward. And he said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I'm your servant, that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you've turned their hearts back. Verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Prophets of Baal began to scatter. Elijah said, seize them all, don't let one get away. Took them down to the brook and slaughtered them. Then he went back to Ahab and said, you need to go home because it's going to rain. Elijah then went and prayed for rain, and when the rain began to come, Elijah tucked his cloak up into his belt and outran the chariot of Ahab back to Jezreel. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel about what had happened. Must have been a bad scene. <laughs> he told Jezebel, you know those 850 prophets you had? They're all gone. A guy named Elijah. And Jezebel did what Jezebels do, I guess. She said, you send that Elijah a message for me. You tell him that he's a dead man walking. Tell him by this time tomorrow, he will be dead. The Bible says this about Elijah's reaction, 19 verse 3. Then he was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough now, Lord. Take away my life. Then Elijah fell asleep, and when he awoke, an angel of the Lord was there with a cake for him to eat and cool water to drink. Elijah ate and drank and then fell asleep again, and the angel said, Eat again. Uh, You need some strength. You've got a journey ahead. He ate again, and when he was ready... The word of the Lord came to him and said to go to Sinai. Elijah traveled for 40 days to the mountain. And there on Mount Sinai, in a cave on the mountain, quite possibly the same cave that Moses stayed in when he was on the mountain, God displayed his power. He told Elijah, he said, Go outside the cave. And when Elijah was outside the cave, first a great wind came, and when I say great wind, it was breaking rocks into. It was a wind. And then an earthquake, God shook the mountain. He had shaken that mountain before, but he shook it again for Elijah. And then he sent a great fire, possibly the same kind of fire that was in the little bush, but this one covered the mountain. And when he was done with all those displays of his power, then the Bible says he spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. And the word of the Lord came to him. You've got more to do. I want you to go anoint a new king. He'll take care of things with Ahab. I want you to meet Elisha. He's going to replace you. You've served well, but it's his time now. And as for you being the only one left... (laughs) I have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed their knees to Baal. Go find Elisha. And he went and found Elisha. And Elisha and him went on a farewell tour. They visited some of those 7,000. They kept heading toward Jordan. And as they got close to the Jordan River, Elijah said to Elisha, what do you want before I leave? And Elisha answered with one of the great answers in the Bible. He said, I want a double portion of your spirit. And as the two prophets, the young one and the old one, walked together toward the Jordan, a chariot of fire, pulled by horses of fire, drove between them and separated them. Elisha watched as Elijah was caught up in a great wind and caught up into the very presence of God. Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak and began his ministry. That's the story of Elijah. What a story. Uh, That's got to be one of my favorites in the Old Testament. I mean, it's got everything in there. Uh, Elijah's the greatest showman. Uh, I mean, he said, come see the battle of the gods. And people came. You've got a superhero in there. You got a wicked witch. You got everything in this story. You got over the top blood and violence. You even got some humor in there. This is a great story. Uh, this is a great story for Sunday school, isn't it? But what's it good for us? You know, how is it good for you and me? Well, let me tell you James in the New Testament was writing about prayer, and he said about prayer, he used Elijah as an example, and this is what he said about Elijah. He said, Elijah was a man just like us. One translation says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And I know he looked like a superhero on Mount Carmel, but James said he's just like us. So, if he was a man just like us, understand this. The story's about Elijah, but the story is also about you. The about me. Stories about us. Now, read it again when you get home. And instead of just looking for the story of Elijah, look for yourself in there. And I'll assure you, you'll find some similarities. You'll find, for instance, that the stories about you, because you're living in a wicked world, like Elijah did. If let me read just one thing a scholar said about what Baalism was like. He said, the principal pillars of Baalism were child sacrifice, sexual immorality, both heterosexual and homosexual, and pantheism, reverence of the creation over the Creator. Adults would gather around the altar of Baal. Infants would then be burned alive as a sacrificial offering to the deity. Congregants would engage in bisexual orgies. The ritual was intended to produce economic prosperity by prompting Baal to bring rain for the fertility of Mother Earth. That's the world Elijah lived in. Elijah lived in a world where good was called evil and evil was called good. Elijah lived in a world when he spoke out against the evil, when he pointed to those things, child sacrifice and uh, sexual immorality and on and on and on. When he pointed to them and he said, that's wrong. He was called the troubler. He was the one that was blamed and shamed and canceled and tried to be killed. That's the world Elijah lived in. But that man, just like us, in the middle of all that, strode into the king's court and proclaimed, My name is Elijah. Eliyahu. My God is Jehovah. Another similarity you'll find is that living in a wicked world, sometimes we're confident on caramel. There are times like that in our life when we know, we know that the Lord, he is God. There's no doubt about it. And the odds don't matter. 850 to 1 or 1 to 1. We'll tell people that my God is Jehovah. We understand that what the word of the Lord says, I will do. Elijah was so confident, I use the word confident because on Mount Carmel, I believe he spoke eight times and all of them were commands. He didn't ask anybody anything. He said, this is the way it is. This is what's right. And it takes courage to do that. And sometimes we're in situations where we need that courage. We have to be confident. It takes courage to speak the truth. Sometimes our own people, sometimes our own family are spiritual jugglers. And we have to say, why do you waver between God and society? That's wrong. I love you. I love you, but I can't waver. If the Lord is God, I've got to follow Him. Sometimes we're strong enough to step forward like Elijah did and pray. God, I want you to be glorified in this culture. I want people to know that I serve you. And I want you to turn the people's hearts back to you. That's what Elijah prayed. My name is Elijah. Eliyahu, my God is Jehovah. Sometimes we're strong enough to say that. But there's a similarity too. Sometimes we find ourselves cowering in a cave. We don't live on the mountaintop 24-7, 365. Sometimes we're under that tree. Sometimes we're in the cave. And you read the story of Elijah. It's hard to believe such a crash. I mean, one day on Mount Carmel the next uh, month in the cave. It's hard to understand unless you read it, looking at our lives also, and you begin to understand how this happened. You see, Elijah was tired. Elijah was worn out. He had had the battle on the top of Mount Carmel, then he slaughtered 850 prophets, then he ran 18 miles to Jezreel, he had all that physically, and on top of that was all the concern for the people and what was going on and whether they would listen or, or what emotionally he had to be worn out too. On top of that was he was alone. It says he left his servant, he left his only companion and went off by himself. He was tired and by himself and he was scared. That change there where when Jezebel told him he was dead, He began to look at Jezebel instead of God. Before that, he had been looking at God. But Jezebel must have been terrifying. He listened to her and he began, she got in his head and he believed what she said. So he was tired, he was alone, he was scared, and all of that pushed him into his own little pity party. And that's all he could talk about was how awful his life was. He said, I, I've been standing up for you, God. The people have forsaken you. and I only, I am left. I'm the only one. And, and now they're trying to kill me? It, when in that chapter, when he's talking like that, we don't hear any, my name is Elijah anymore. That's the condition that he was in. Cowering in a cave. I don't know about your story. I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you're closer to the Carmel or closer to the cave. But I know Elijah's story is about you. I know it can teach us something. We can identify with all of it, and that may be helpful to you to see yourself in the story. But let's go one step further. We need to know that this story—it's about Elijah. It's also about you, but it's really about God. That's what stories in the Bible are. They're God revealing himself. They're showing you how he deals with people. Lots of different stories, lots of different people, but the story's about God. No matter how wicked the world is, no matter where you are, if you're confident on Carmel or cowering in a cave, Read Elijah's story again when you get home, and this time look for God. You'll see some truth about God. You'll see that he knows. Think about this. Do you think Elijah ever, in that three and a half some years, ever questioned what was going on? I mean, read it and look at what happened to him. All right, God says, first, I want you to go insult the worst king that ever lived. You know, start there, and then I want you to go out to a brook where birds will bring you some food. Go live alone for a few months. And, well, whoops, now we ran out of water out there. So now I want you to go somewhere else, and a widow's going to take care of you. And you get there, and she's stone cold broke. Uh, All this has happened. Do you think in three and a half years, maybe Elijah said, what is going on? You know, where is God in this? As far as we know, God only spoke a couple of times through all that. Told him what to do next. I know he questioned. I know he questioned God because James told me that he's a man just like us. If all that was happening to me for three and a half years, I'd question God. Well, what you see is that God knew. God knows where you are. God knew exactly where Elijah was. He knew exactly where Elijah was going. Isaiah 49, 6 is a great verse. The Lord says, your name is written on my hand. He pictures for us, that's how close we are to him. And Elijah, by the brook, with the widow, all the things that were going on, had to wonder, where is God? And God was looking at Elijah's name. So he knows whether you're up or down or your highest or lowest or cowering or confident, God knows what's going on. God knows he also answers. God answered every one of Elijah's needs. Even when he didn't ask. Think about it, read that. In the worst drought in history, Elijah never went thirsty when he was living in a penniless household, he never went hungry. And when Elijah asked for big things, his God answered. Raise this boy from the dead. Send fire. Send rain. God answered. He knows, he answers, and he loves. Don't miss this part. When we see Elijah in the cave and the tree, sometimes we just focus on Elijah. But look at God. He knew Elijah. He loved Elijah. He understood where Elijah was. Notice how God dealt with him under the tree and in the cave. God allowed him a time of rest. He knew he needed rest. He knew he couldn't press on. And there was no sermon from God. There was no rebuke. There was no blame, no shame. You know, sometimes we picture God. Well, He just shot a lightning bolt right there beside Elijah He said, "Get up, you worthless prophet! We got work to do." But that's not what God did. He allowed Him to rest, and then had angels bring Him fresh baked bread and and cool water. Allowed Him to sleep, and then said, "Eat some more. Eat again. Build your strength. You need to get back to work, but I've got someplace special for you to go." And he knew Elijah needed some more time, so he sent him to Sinai. And can you imagine going into probably the very cave where Moses spent 40 days on the mountain? Realizing the history of that place. And God allowed that. He didn't say, snap out of it, son. You can't feel like this. My people don't get depressed. Get up and get busy. He simply asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah wasn't quite there yet. He was still pitying himself, so he he told God that. He said, I'm the only one left. I can't do this anymore. And God said, go outside. Get out of the dark. Go out where it's light, and I'll show you my power. I'm with you. I'm always with you. I'll show you. And he sent the wind, and he sent the earthquake, and he sent the fire. And after he had displayed his power like that, the Bible says that he said in just a gentle voice, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And Elijah still talked about being the only one, and God said, you still have a job to do. you got a future, you got special work to do, but you're almost done. I want you to go anoint a new king. I want you to meet a new friend, Elisha. He's going to be your replacement. And you're not alone. There, there, We've got 7,000 that haven't brought up their need to bail. I want you to meet some of them. God's love doesn't only dealt with Elijah in that cave, He'll deal with you in love, too. Y- your name's written on His hand. He knows, He answers, He loves, and He rewards. God allowed Elijah to take a farewell tour, to meet some of the 7,000, to get to know Elijah, to counsel him for his ministry. And then as the young prophet and the old prophet walked together, a chariot of fire drove between them and a great wind caught Elijah up into the sky. The presence of God. The story in those eight little chapters It's about Elijah. It's also about you. It's really about God. Two things stand out in that story that I'd like to close with. And James pointed them both out in his little mention of Elijah. First, he said the prayer of a righteous man. Elijah was a righteous man. And what that means is, you read the story and watch for it. It says over and over and over again, the word of the Lord came, so Elijah went. The word of the Lord said, do this, so Elijah did it. See how many times you can find that. That's what being righteous is. The word of the Lord says something. That's what we do, what we try to do. So Elijah obeyed, you can call it that, but Elijah also prayed, I think, is what stands out in this story. If you want a model of a prayer that's effectual, go read Elijah's prayer. let see, James used it as an example. He said, this is the effectual prayer of a righteous man. So go look at that prayer, and you'll see three things in there he did. He started with, God, I want you to be glorified. I don't want fire because it'll make me look good. I don't want fire to show the prophets of Baal how bad they are. I don't want to defeat Ahab. I don't want. Anything. I want you to be glorified. Try starting your prayers with that and see how they work. It may change the rest of the prayer if your first desire is for God to be glorified in this. Secondly, he said, "I want people to know that I'm your servant." However, this comes out, I want them to know I'm doing this. Because I'm your servant. And third thing he said was, I want you to turn their hearts back to you. He had concern for the people. In this wicked, wicked, wicked world, he was worried about the people. That's an effectual prayer. If the story of Elijah's about us, about our God, it's not too much of a leap to be bold enough to say, well... If all that's true, then maybe these are the days of Elijah. And some of you immediately started humming a tune when I said that. Now, there's a song that we sing called, the, These Are the Days of Elijah. Let me tell you a little about that song. It never made much sense to me, i got to admit. I mean, these aren't the days of Elijah. He died hundreds of years ago. So I read about the song a little bit. And the fellow that wrote it, he was an Irishman named Robin Mark, he said he wrote it after watching a TV review at the end of the year. You know how the TV stations say, here's what happened this year. He said he watched that one New Year's time. And he said some of it was silly stuff, and some of it was happy stuff, and some of it was serious stuff. But he said overwhelmingly, it was just depressing. It was devastating war going on here and another one going on there. Tragedy here and wickedness here. And he said after he watched all that, he found himself despairing about the state of the world. Well, this place is a mess. And he said he began to wonder if God was really in control. You know, as bad as everything is, is God really running things? And he said as he thought on those things, the more he thought about the Bible and other things, he began to remember Old Testament stories. Elijah, Moses, David, Ezekiel. And he said he realized that in those stories, God was in control. But at certain times, things were so bad, the culture had got to the point where God needed somebody to stand up and speak for him. Elijah, Moses, Ezekiel, and others. So as he thought that, he wrote the first verse of these are the days of Elijah. He said, these are the days of Elijah declaring the word of the Lord. And these are the days of your servant Moses' righteousness being restored. And though these are days of great trial, of famine and darkness and sword, still we are the voice in the desert, crying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And as he wrote the other verses that were in the same vein, he he began to think that, well, we need some kind of hope here. We need to understand that we've got to focus on a great hope. So in the chorus, he paraphrased some Things from Revelation about the second coming. He used something from the Old Testament about the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, if you don't know it, every 50 years, Israel, they canceled all the debts. They they unleashed all the captives. They set everything right again. They made everything just and fair again. That was the year of Jubilee. So he wrote the chorus. And he said, behold, he comes." Riding on the clouds. Shining like the sun at the trumpet call. Lift your voice. It's the year of jubilee. And out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. This song is not a traditional invitation song. We're going to sing it to remember the kind of world we live in and the God we serve. You may be under the tree, you may be cowering in the cave, you may need a year of jubilee. If you do, our elders will be at the back and they'd love to talk to you about how to find that hope. Let's stand and sing this song.